Hey, welcome to the Street Shots Photography Podcast with the Switch to Manual guys. I'm Antonio, and today we have my best friend and friend of the Switch to Manual guys joining us, Gene uh, Neely. Hey, Gene. Hey, what's happening, Antonio? How you doing? <laughs> Good. I've been looking forward to doing this. You know, I, I'm just looking at our Skype uh, window, and it looks like um, the last time we did an interview with you, or I had you on the show, was 2015. So wow. almost two years ago. But you and I talk about photography all the time, and we end up over breakfast saying, oh, we should have made a <laughs> podcast out of this. Do a podcast. So, so, you know, this is our 57th episode. Just to, okay. I got to put that in there. 57 episodes, but yeah, I don't, I can't remember when we had you on there, but yeah, we're, we're talking all the time and we're thinking, uh, you know, we need to talk about photography in front of other people instead of just us. So this morning over breakfast, you and I were talking about how the landscape of photographic education has changed in the time that we've been involved with digital, which is a long time now. How, how long is it? Remind me. <laughs> okay. So, so I'm really well known as a Photoshop teacher and a digital educator. And I'm, it's really fun for me to tell people that you're the guy who taught me Photoshop and you taught me Photoshop in 1994 on a Macintosh 7166 megahertz, uh, with Photoshop 3.0. 66 megahertz. Yep. And that's when you taught me how to use layers and masks. Did you, I'm just thinking, I just remembered that computer. Did you end up buying that for me? Yeah, I did. You I did. had that for quite a while. <laughs> I remember there was one weekend when, uh, when you loaned me your apartment and your computer and you went out of town and I was working on one of my first sort of digital projects for stock, uh, submission. And I was working with a template where, um, I was doing some multiple imaging and I was relatively new to Photoshop and it was like a big deal for me to be using layers and masks on a file that was big enough for output. And, uh, the computer crashed and I thought I broke it. <laughs> it's like I, I had to literally unplug the computer from the wall and I was like freaking out that I was going to have to buy the computer from you when you came back and you were like, oh yeah, you just have to restart it. But you have to remember those days were also the days when we weren't sure what was in that little beige box sitting on our desk. I mean, less so. It was more of a mystery as yep. I recall. And, you know, we were photographers, not necessarily, you know, computer technicians. So. Damn it, Jim. <laughs> well, you know, my first. My first version of Photoshop, and I might have mentioned this on the show before, but just indulge me for a second. My first version of Photoshop was uh, an, uh, on an emulated Amiga computer, Commodore Amiga computer. Nice. And I had set that up so that I could dual boot it into the uh, uh, Amiga operating system and, and Apple's operating system. And I think the first version of Photoshop I had was 2.5 that I was able to get via my ex-wife as <laughs> through um educational discount and it's possible i still have those discs some <laughs> so 23 years later right i think i think oh my god photoshop years? is already old school and that's that's kind of what i've noticed is is photoshop in the year 2000 when i began to teach uh anything right that was the go-to program and now photoshop has become sort of the equivalent in my mind of what the zone system became, which is the zone system was for a very, very small percentage of photographers who really wanted to do a lot of work on a few images. Well, wait, hey, before think, you go, before you go into that, can you yeah. 
maybe for everybody who doesn't know what the zone system is, can you do a quick explanation of what that is and where it came of from? Of course. Um, so the zone system was a method of exposure and development for black and white film that was developed by Ansel Adams and I believe Fred Picker. And what they figured out was that you could make a negative that had a full range of tones, which would be the equivalent of a digital file having like pixels ranging all the way from zero to 255 rather than just smushed in the middle Right. So you mean like so a huge it, dynamic range. Right. Which, so it, thing, it yeah. was it was a way to get the most dynamic range out of black and white film by exposing for the shadows and then developing the film either less or more to extend or contract the tonal range to the maximum that the film could handle. Mm -hmm. So that when you got into the darkroom, theoretically, you didn't have to increase or decrease the contrast through filters or paper choice. Your negative had a full range of tones and it would print really well. Can I ask you, would that be the equivalent of today, like maybe making sure the picture is really well done in camera and doing less post-production on that, would you say? Well, yes and no, because when you're shooting a scene that has um, less contrast, it doesn't really matter how well you do the capture or the exposure, you know, that needs to be um, expanded to fill the histogram in order to be able to make a print that really sings. So even if you do your, your exposure exactly right, there are times when you want to expand the histogram and there are times when you want to bring highlight detail back or bring shadow detail up. Okay. All right. So the zone system created by Ansel Adams and the other guy, his name? Yeah, Fred Picker. He didn't, but, but I think, who's I think more, the point... Who's more well-known? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I so think the ahead. point I was trying to make, though, is, is that there was like a crazy level of darkroom work, like an obsessive level that people used to get into. And then there were other people who just went into the darkroom and made their prints. And then there were other people who handed their negatives off. And so now it's like, I think Photoshop has become for most photographers, the tool of the people who are really obsessed with getting the most out of a single image, people who spend like a day on a whole picture or hours on a whole picture, as opposed to those people who are shooting lots and lots of pictures, just want to get those pictures done and move on with their day. And so I think the shift in what's happened with the workshops that I teach is I used to teach a lot of workshops that were about Photoshop layers and masks or about understanding Photoshop, or about advanced techniques for Photoshop. And in my mind, somewhere around the introduction of Lightroom 4 or 5, um, people didn't want so much Photoshop anymore. I mean, I still use Photoshop, but Photoshop has become this crazy old school thing. I mean, like, it was 23 years ago that you mm -hmm. taught me Photoshop. Mm -hmm. So can we, uh, let me think about this for a second, because I, I have Photoshop and I'm using it less and less, so I might be one of the people we're talking about here. And one of the things I keep noticing about Photoshop year after year after year is that it became, it becomes more and more complex. There's more and more things for you to possibly do in Photoshop than you could. I mean, I'm trying to think about that version 3.0 way back when yep. and comparing it to today. It was pretty complex then. It was right. And today, like they really, it really hasn't, Photoshop really hasn't changed all that much. They pretty much have just, added more and more and more stuff to it i'm like but it's like learning a language it's like it's like there are 
Lightroom is a simpler language to learn. Snapseed is a way simpler language to learn. So, you know, I think the number of people who feel the necessity to learn that language uh, has sort of trailed off. Although, you know, I really, I love helping people with Photoshop as complex as it is because I, I really love Photoshop still. And and one of my little jokes is is, you know, when people want reassurance about like what I know about Photoshop, I say, don't worry, I know 99% of like 35% of Photoshop. <laughs> you know, I've, I've used that in my classes too, when yeah. I've, I've quoted you on that. Um, but I, I like to think that uh, uh, for you, Photoshop is literally the sort of the extension of the dark room, which you, as I recall, seem to love spending time in. Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time in a wet dark room, and I did love it. But then, when you introduce when you introduced me to Photoshop, it was like the thing that I had been waiting for my whole life that I didn't even know existed, because I was one of these crazy people who had three enlargers in their dark room and, you know, read everything that Jerry Yulesman wrote. Jerry Yulesman is a guy who, in the 1970s, started making multiple prints, that is, prints from more than one negative in the same print, uh, in a surrealist style. And uh, he would have like five enlargers in his darkroom with five different negatives. And he'd take the paper from one easel to the next to the next to be able to make multiple image silver prints. So when Photoshop showed up, it was like, oh, man, this is this is what I want. And uh, I was going to say, though, you, you mentioned we, we started Photoshop 20 something years ago. Yeah. And for us who've been involved with it for so long as many as other people have the learning curve for it initially was pretty steep. Maybe, yep. maybe less so for you because once you started translating what you learned in the darkroom to uh, the language of Photoshop, it was, it started to probably make a lot of sense. Maybe, but the initial learning curve is steep. It is like learning a language. It's like learning to play a musical instrument. I mean, one of the fun things that my friend Brian Reed from Hawaii pointed out to me he's a great photographer and a jazz musician and a blues harmonica player and a dj you know he and i were sitting playing in photoshop one day and he's like oh my god this is like jazz improv photoshop is a keyboard instrument like literally it's a keyboard instrument like the piano well maybe we extend that because maybe the version of photoshop that we started with was like that and today it's more like a one-man band where you have to know how to play the keyboards the drums the the piano, like everything at once. Well, I mean, you're talking about the the um, traditional darkroom, and I think that that the tools are almost irrelevant. The tools change. Like Photoshop is a great tool; you can do everything that you want to do. But when Lightroom Five came out in June 2013, with that radial gradient filter, that was a total game changer because it allowed you to do all of the quote unquote darkroom work that you needed to be able to do. I mean, I see darkroom work as, you know, I want to change here, but not here. It means local adjustments. It means you've got a piece of cardboard with a hole or a penny with a stick, and you can change the face without changing the background, or you can change the sky without changing the foreground. And up until that point, Lightroom wasn't quite robust enough to do all the local adjustments that someone who wanted to do quote unquote darkroom work wanted to do. And so at that point, I think that's probably simultaneous with where I started to see enrollment fall off in Photoshop workshops that I was offering 
at ICP or in main media or at the Santa Fe workshops. Um, and I think a lot of people sort of started scrambling curriculum wise to figure out what it was that people wanted to learn. So what, what do you think about Lightroom besides that made it more? I mean, I can't imagine it's just that one tool, but what would it? There must have been a simultaneous thing going on between Photoshop and Lightroom. Now, we have to remember that both come from the same company. Right? I know. It's funny. And uh, Photoshop is always going to be there for people who need – I mean, there's Photoshop is not just for photographers, right? It's for designers and um, a lot of illustrators and whatnot. Yep. But what – I mean, what are the two things that happened? I mean, first of all, I, probably, I know it has nothing to do with the creative cloud, so we're not going to get into that stuff because that's just a marketing thing. But something on the technology, something shifted in terms of the way people are photographing or how I want to deal with photographs. And don't yeah. and don't forget that I want to talk about this too because I've had a shift. So we want to get into that as well. But that's just well, my talk point about, of view. Talk about your shift then. I mean, because you you're hardly even using Lightroom. I mean, you're you you're in an almost entirely mobile workflow. And I know you use Lightroom Mobile, but you were using a lot of other apps before that. And you know you had. Pretty, you have and had completely abandoned Photoshop because what you told me was you just got really tired of sitting in front of the computer and the tools became good enough so you didn't have to. Pretty much. I mean, you know, I, I'm at the point now where I don't think I could actually teach <laughs> other anything other than basic uh, Photoshop um, because I don't really use it that often enough now to find myself able to tell someone else how to use it. So... I don't know if my shift came around the same time that you're talking about. I mean, maybe not having to do with Lightroom, but... Well, when did you buy your first Fuji camera? Uh, I bought my first Fuji camera... Oh, what is it? And it was the X... Shucks. It's the... Um, X20? The X20, right. So it's like the point-and-shoot version of the X cameras, because I couldn't yep. afford the other more expensive X cameras, so I bought that one. And gosh darn it, I must have bought it in 2000... I think I bought it in 2013. So it's almost simultaneous. It's almost simultaneous, but I wasn't quite uh, using the. Well, maybe I was using the mobile processing then as well. But um, let me think about this for a second. Ah. But what I ended up doing is, besides shifting my workflow, I was also shifting. I mean, I'm really going through a shift in my photography, you know, being altogether. I mean, you knew me when we were, you know, shooting stock photography together. And now yes, I'm not in the doing, Stone Age. In the Stone Age, when when stock photography could be shot by not more than you know a small handful of people. Now everybody's doing it. But um, you know the shift for me with the camera and going into doing more street photography and really wanting some sort of immediate feedback. I mean, it also came in hand in hand with like how the mobile devices that I'm using. So I'm yep. using my iPhone or my iPad have gotten better. I mean, they're essentially mini computers now. I'm not even thinking of my iPhone. And I think as a you phone. just said something really important, which is immediate feedback, right? I mean, one of the things that I really still love about Photoshop as opposed to the traditional darkroom, and I have many friends who work in wet plate and in silver and all kinds of archaic processes. I mean, um, I have nothing but love and respect for these people. And what I love is immediately seeing the change on the computer screen but mm -hmm. it almost got to the point where that wasn't fast enough for people mm. so for you not only the immediacy of seeing your picture on the back of the camera but also being able to do the playing around that you wanted to do um, 
moments after you took the picture rather than waiting until you go back to the studio right, right. and you download the card and then you fire up Photoshop. It's like, um, I think, I think a big part of what we're talking about is driven by this desire for, uh, immediacy and not, not in a impatient kind of immediate, like I need immediate satisfaction way, but in a, I want to play now. Right. Right. Like, and I'm, and I still have the creative you know, I just took this picture and my creative juices are still going. Yeah. And what can I do instead of having to wait, you know, a week before I process the pictures, I can do something about it now while it's still in me, you know? So I'm sure that you've talked about this on your podcast before, but, you know, why don't you tell people just really briefly what that abbreviated workflow looks like? Oh, so... And and it started with the X20 because I was able to find uh, an ability to using um, what's called an iFi card, which has a, a memory card that had built-in Wi-Fi. And so I was able to transfer pictures directly from my f camera to my phone. But once I had that workflow, basically it's it's looking at the pictures on the back of the camera, choosing which ones I want, uh, launching an application on my phone, connecting it to the camera, picking and choosing the the few pictures I want to work on. Now, again, I'm working on teeny tiny thumbnails. So sometimes I end up picking more pictures because I can't really yep. see them clearly. But then on my screen, whether it's my iPad or my iPhone, which have retina displays, which means right. very, and the very, iPhone, yeah, the bigger of, ones are almost as big as a tablet now. Exactly. And there's a lot of resolution. So you can really see the detail in the picture. So transferring them to the phone. And you're talking about transferring JPEGs. I'm showing, yes, I'm talking about transferring JPEGs. And I still, by the way, I still shoot JPEG. And raw. I mean, I'm never going to give up my raw, raw imagery because I can always go back to those. But lately now, and I've been the one, I, I've said this before, I've been the one who tells people, you know, you got to shoot raw and, you know, forget JPEGs. And now I'm the other way around. And that may have, have something to do with the cameras I'm working with. Uh, but it's right also now. a really kind of a beautiful kind of open-mindedness that, okay, yes, the raw file has this amazing latitude, right? But right. you're actually shooting with a relatively low megapixel camera and you're shooting with much more camera discipline than you used to um, because you want those JPEGs and you want them to be perfect. So you're kind of back to this mindset of almost shooting the way that you shot transparency film right, right. so that you don't have to worry when you transfer that JPEG onto your phone or your tablet to do some immediate processing because from there you take it right to Instagram or to 500 pixels or something like that, right? right? And, you know, again, up until, you know, a few years ago, some of the uh, processing software that was on the mobile devices was not very, I should say, gentle with the images. images. Yeah. And, and now that there are some applications that can do, and what I mean by gentle is that it wanna, when, I, when I process my pictures, and I'm sure probably a lot of people are, are like this as well. I'm sure you as are included to this. You don't want to over-process the picture so that it begins to look like something that's I don't know beyond what. Yeah, you, you want you want to do all your darkroom work in a way that looks like you didn't. Right. That's some subtle some subtlety to it. Not maybe not always subtle, but just you know, uh, well, be nice to your picture. You know, do you no want harm. The processing <laughs> to call attention to itself because exactly. that's not right. the point. Right. Yeah, and don't so pay over sharpening to that or any kind of artifacting or any kind of crunchiness right. that just fights with, you know, viewers ability to take in the picture itself. Right. You end up getting distracted by, you know, the fact that you've created a weird 
a high dynamic range image rather right. than so saying we're, what we're talking about is good technique right yeah, good technique good but, technique is good technique regardless of the software regardless of whether you use jpegs well, or raw and there's nothing wrong with jpegs yeah, I wouldn't jpegs say are it's, beautiful yeah i would say it's only uh, i mean the software does have something to do with it i think because like i was saying that the the applications that i'm using and generally i'm using snapseed and now lately also lightroom mobile yep um they are very gentle they can be very gentle i should say to the pictures that I'm importing from my camera. Sure. And so I found that rather than needing or desiring a raw picture where you have a lot more latitude, that I can do adjustments to the JPEG and still uh, keep that processing uh, look uh, in sort of the background so you're not noticing it. So that's, that ended up being my workflow. But a couple of things I think contributed to that. You know, I'm looking at my computer now. I got an old Dell monitor on here and my pictures don't necessarily look as good anymore on these monitors that I'm using. I mean, we'd have to spend a lot of money to increase that. The iPhones and the iPads have gotten better resolution, so my pictures start to look much better. They look like they're prints on there. And so there was, you know, there was probably a combination of things that turned yeah. me away from it. Plus, I, you know, yes, I don't necessarily like sitting in front of my computer anymore at, for extended periods of time. So... And, and I'm also getting older and sitting in one spot for too long. You know, there's all that stuff combined. But uh, there's also all this background that you have, right? Well, yeah. So, yeah, you, so you know, that. I mean, first of all, like Snapseed, as much as anything else, has this ability to do local adjustments. It's got beautiful inner and outer vignetting. It's got little tiny retouching tools. It's got um, brushes where you can adjust one part but not the other part. Mm -hmm. So it brings us back to this idea of, it allows us to do all this interpretation of the image, right? To redirect the attention the mm -hmm. same way we did in the dark room. But the background you have is not only that knowledge, but also you know to zoom in and to check what's happening with the pixels, right, to right, check right. on whether the picture's been damaged. You know sort of to do the darkroom work in a way that it doesn't show up as darkroom work. And that's kind of... Um, I think the crucial distinction between people who get results that they really love and people who end up frustrated is, is why is it I see my darkroom work? Why is it that somebody else is like looking in the corner of the picture rather than mm -hmm. at the person yeah. in the middle? And it's like, it's because people who know how to redirect attention like you and know how to check their work um, can sort of adapt to any kind of workflow. So going back to what we started with, how am, how am I typical compared to people who would be taking a class with you or not to learn this stuff? Like, am I sort of the kind of person <laughs> who before would be taking a class with you? And now I'm like, well, you know, shoot, I can, you know, I can do this on my phone or I can watch a YouTube video or... Like, you know, what I think I think what typical is, is we're all we're all obsessed, right? We're all obsessed with making pictures. We really want to make pictures. We love making pictures. We all are open to seeing that there's more that we could do. And we want to learn what that more is. Um, so, I mean, the workshops I'm teaching now have a wide range of sort of expertise and people come together at places like, you know, Anderson Ranch, uh, where I'm teaching a workshop, uh, August 21st to 25th Where's this Anderson year. Ranch? 
in Colorado. It's up in the Rockies in Snowmass. And so there's beautiful landscape there and there's a great lab and we go back and forth between the landscape and the lab. But it's a chance to sort of be together with your people and spend time just talking about the stuff that we're talking about now. So um, I think the typical student is just somebody who wants to be in community, wants other perspectives on their own work and is open to the idea that there's always another level to reach. So for some people, you know, uh, what's, what's funny about the classes now is they're not specifically Photoshop. They're not specifically Lightroom. What I'm teaching now is sort of how to go from almost to wow is what mm. I call it, where you've got like a good picture or a really good picture and you've got a raw file or a JPEG in your case. And you know that there's darkroom work that can make it sing. So we could do that darkroom work in Lightroom. We could do that darkroom work in Photoshop. We could do that darkroom work in Snapseed. We could sort of in the field in the moment add a reflector or a flash or think about how we might do HDR. Just what are all the tools that we can use to play around and get the most out of what we're seeing, not just in front of us, but inside right? How can we interpret what's in front of us and make it ours? I mean, that's what I love about your pictures is, you know, when I walk down the street in your neighborhood with you and I see you snapping pictures of people as they pass by, what I'm seeing is in color and it's mm. really chaotic. <laughs> and then I know that you're using, um, sort of a relatively tight frame and you're converting to black and white and that there's a very specific flavor to that black and white that really makes the people uh, stand out. So what we explore in the workshops that I teach is, is how each person can develop their own sort of flavor of cooking, their own style of playing the musical instrument that is making photographs. And you know what I realized a minute ago when we were talking about all these different modalities is um, – I think you're wrong. I think you could teach Photoshop. I think you could teach anything because you don't forget. But there are people who become proficient in more than one musical instrument. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that, you know, I don't love the piano anymore and I'm playing cello. It's like, wow, how cool is it that you can play Photoshop and you can play Snapseed and you can play Lightroom. And each of those musical instruments gives you access to sort of a different way of um coloring hmm. the flavor of your pictures i'm mixing a lot of metaphors yeah. here but i think <laughs> so you get I'm getting it. hungry and i'm gonna, right? gonna dance a little bit you know i'm thinking that have we now reached or are reaching the point when you're saying that the the classes that you teach specifically in photoshop have fallen off but now you've got these uh this workshop that's coming up in august you said and i yep. think you said you have another one coming up in yeah, in January in uh, in Bennington, Vermont, yeah. at the North Country Studio Workshops. That's going to be January 23rd to 28th in 2018. And, and what's that class? Well, it's also a really similar class. Okay, um, so... Where, yeah, where people ahead. just come together uh, so that as a group, as a team, we can have some fun and figure out sort of how to... Um, how to make our work better together. It's yeah, kind of grown-up playtime. Yeah, I'm, th I'm thinking that, uh, you know, Photoshop 
in a way has um, we've reached that point now where it maybe no longer is a, is is the what how should I say this like it's not the end you know it's a means to the end like you're saying it could be Photoshop it could be Lightroom sure. it could be Snapseed and the idea is it doesn't matter how you're well, like this is what you're saying I'm I'm interpreting but it doesn't matter how you're getting to your final picture. But yeah. what's in the process of making that picture? What is your no? I'm not. I'm not interested in in how people make their right. pictures. I'm interested in good pictures, right? Good pictures. So so it's funny. I mean, yeah. this is this is how the history of photography has always been. There there have been literally more than a hundred distinct processes since 1839, and I'm sure that the daguerreotypists were absolutely horrified when people started making tintypes. It's like, <laughs> oh my God, it's so easy. Like anybody could do that, and the quality is nowhere near as good as daguerreotype that's that's not real photography mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then the same thing happened later in the switch to silver gelatin from wet plate collodion i'm sure so huh so what do we so what do we do then i mean do we continue to uh try to learn these programs do we do we i mean what do we do what what's the next step well i i think the next step is is just or what's the next trying uh, yeah i mean what's the next I think, it, I think i think the hard part is not learning the new software i think the hard part is not getting stuck making the same picture again and again and again right mm -hmm. so there's all kinds of stuff that's opening up i mean astrophotography is a, a new interest for me and it's become so easy that even i can do it um you know, I've been making more color work as opposed to black and white in recent years. And, you know, there are people who make really, really beautiful photographs, but it's in a certain style and they mm -hmm. make the same photograph again and again. So I think the question is, how can we push ourselves into doing something that will, oh, who's it? Sean Kernan. No, it's Jerry Yulesman again. Jerry Yulesman said in a lecture that I went to that his goal always was to try to astonish himself <laughs> with his own work. <laughs> it's like, it's really nice if you can surprise yourself yeah. with your own work and to push into doing something new. And of course, as we keep practicing with the tools, right? I mean, it is like a language mm -hmm. or like playing a musical instrument that it requires practice in order for you to be comfortable enough so that you're not worried about the tools themselves and you're really worried you're not worried, you're focused on the creative process. So I think, I think all this software stuff is just a red herring. I mean, the question is, how can I be more creative? How can mm -hmm. I have more fun? How can I make pictures that'll surprise me? How can I push my own envelope? How can I meet people who are interested in the same things? How can I get out of the atmosphere of my everyday distraction and give myself the gift of some time where I'm just being creative and experimenting and risking and taking pictures in a different way than I've ever taken them. Do you think this has something to do with the uh, resurgence of uh, people wanting to shoot film? Yeah, yeah. I do. I think, I, I mean, think it's not just a hipster. Is the same. The desire is the same. Right. It's not just, I mean, I, with all due respect to hipsters, but I mean, <laughs> I like to say it's not just a, you know, a young person hipster uh, trend like, oh, well, let's, you know, let's just jump out of digital and come back to film. There are people who are now saying, I want to try film because of the very reasons that you're talking about, because they want to push themselves. They want to be surprised. Yep. They want to right. do something new and 
uh, we've been we've been in this you know digital resurgence for so long, and it's it's now time to you know revisit the old ways a little bit because they offered something that that digital um, perhaps doesn't always offer. You I know, agree. There's less surprises in digital. While and... while I will never shoot film again, I totally agree. <laughs> you know, I and I, I said... want to say that I think I think you know the yeah. the people whose work I respect. It has nothing to do with uh, whether they shoot, um, you know, tintype or color or black and white or digital mm -hmm. or analog. It has to do with whether they make really strong pictures and whether those pictures are a reflection of them, mm -hmm. whether they're making pictures that are only theirs, like their song to sing and not some shadow of other pictures that other people have made. So, you know, as far as young people with cameras, um, they need to earn my respect, right? <laughs> by paying their dues the way that we did by learning what, the exposure triangle is learning how to direct attention by using, you know, shallow or greater depth of field, learning how the shutter speed works, learning how to use a tripod, learning how to frame in a way that has like, you know, mind blowing structural integrity. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, people running around with a film camera and not knowing how to expose film. Yeah. Not so much. <laughs> not so much. I'm, 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 uh, you know, cause I was just, Actually, while we were talking, I'm just I'm playing with this uh, business card from uh, a gentleman I met in our neighborhood, a guy named David Bias, who's part of the uh, Film Ferenia group, a uh, group of people who purchased uh, an old uh, film um, manufacturing plant in Italy. Oh, cool. And I think they, this was one of the plants that made the old uh, Scotch chrome film. The, remember oh, that? the grainy high-speed. The, the grainy high-speed film. Six, I think it was 1600 speed. Um, but anyway, I was just looking at the card when I when I asked you about this uh, this idea of going back to film and yep. and and thinking that it's it's something that we, you know, uh, that we lost a little bit in terms of digital. But this idea of I want to hold on to this idea for a second about surprising yourself. Yep. Um, because. You know, one of the things that I sort of get, I sort of get, want to get back in touch with, with, with sort of that magic in photography, uh, which is for you and me, uh, who grew up in darkrooms, I think there was very much of that, um, that magic there. Uh, right. I mean, one of the things that we wanted to talk about was magic and intuition and how yes. yeah. those are really valuable tools. I mean, I think about um, this, this interview I saw. Um, on video with Cartier-Bresson and it was sort of later in his life and you know he had moved on to painting he wasn't photographing anymore but he was still so famous that people kept pestering him for interviews and he kind of angrily said to the interviewer who was insistently asking about photography he said um, he said I don't care about photography what I care about is geometry and emotion right hmm. so you know, what I care about in my photographs is I care about like magic and intuition and unseen worlds. And as you help me understand, I'm really interested in stuff that's bigger than me. And I don't mean big mountains. I mean, right, right. metaphorically bigger than me. I'm interested in photographs that sort of um, show that the world we live in is not just a physical world, but a world of spirit and metaphor and just beauty. 
as you're saying that, I'm, I'm trying to think about uh, two things. Uh, one, uh, you mentioned sort of taking the same picture over and over and over again. Yep. And that can be a trap because if it's good, you want to repeat the experiment, right? Right. right. And so you, you make lots of good pictures, but after you make a thousand pictures that are good, that are the same picture, it's time to do something else. Somebody to do something else. Yes. And then, uh, I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm, my photography, my street photography is, is pretty similar to itself. Yeah. The only thing that's different is the subject because I'm, I tend to always photograph somebody different. Although on occasion I photograph the same person over and over again, cause I see them in my neighborhood. But and as you said that, I'm like, I'm sort of going through my mind. I'm like, you know, I, you know but I, I don't want to do a different style in every picture. But maybe my pictures well, are not about I've, that. But there are other ways that you could push yourself. And, and well, we've talked about this before. It's like, I would really like to see you exhibit those photographs. Yeah, that's we'll get into that. Later. <laughs> right. So, but, so making some prints, making it yeah. physical, deciding well, how big or how small they need to be, getting those pictures in conversation with each other. That would be awesome. Yeah. I mean, part of, part of what I'm looking at with my work and you know frankly for me i think you're you're i find you able to talk about your work a lot uh better than i can think about my own work i i have a hard time talking about my own work and it's funny because you've really helped me in understanding my work and well, you've helped me to be better at talking about it's it. easy to t it's easier to help someone else than to help yourself sometimes yeah, that's true um which is a great reason to take a workshop or to do some like mentoring or some one-on-one -on -one or some private lessons you know yeah um oh yeah and switch the manual offers portfolio reviews and that's yeah. something that i've also been doing i mean getting getting someone who's not so attached to your pictures to look at your pictures so that they can tell you what they see and so you can see if what you intend and what's conveyed in the pictures, whether those two things line up, that can be a great way to help steer the boat of your photographic arc. I actually agree a lot about that. And uh, but, but I want to hold that thought for a second because I was just thinking okay. about like uh, you're also talking about something, you know, shooting something bigger than you are. And yeah. it wasn't necessarily a physical thing. And I thought, okay, um, you know, I look, I look at, uh, most of my pictures, you know, I share on Instagram. That's the, the biggest place where you can see my street photography. And lately I think I'm up to something like 3000 pictures and when I scroll through it. I'm like, my, my God, that's a lot of people photographed. That's, right. And it's also those people sort of talking to each other, you know, once they're yeah. all up there together, it becomes an exhibition of sorts. And, well, um, just you know, thinking we, that it's a large group of, of uh, like it's it's bigger than I am. It's like I can no longer. What is that phrase from a movie that I love so much? Um, oh my gosh, it was a it was a war movie <laughs> called The Eagle Has Landed. Yeah, I know it. Yeah, and there's a there's a phrase in it that uh, anyway, I won't get into the story about it, but there's a phrase where Michael Caine says it, it's uh, gotten to the point where uh, I no longer control events; they control me, and. Uh, Thinking about that in terms of at least my photography and maybe as you were talking about in general, that, you know, at, at a certain point, maybe the photography is taking me on a journey and um, and it's becoming bigger than I am. So anyway, I wanted to get that thought out. You know, our, our buddy Vincent Versace has a great catchphrase. He says, um, you don't want to take pictures. You want to be taken by your pictures. Ah, which sounds very much like what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And it yeah, sounds very yeah. much like what Jerry Yulesman is saying also. 
I mean, for me, there's a certain uh, amount of listening. I mean, I know it's, it's strange because we work in a visual medium, but I feel like the more I can listen to my pictures, uh, the more justice I can do them in the post-processing, the more I can make them the way that they want to be, the more when I'm out photographing that I can sort of listen while I look, the, the better I can hear the voice of intuition saying, that's a picture over there, mm-hmm. or this is not a picture, move on. So actually, let me hold you on that point. What is a, what is a practical way to do that? What would be a practical way to listen to your pictures? Well, I mean, I do that a lot in the software, you know, um, just scrolling through and in, in Lightroom, one of the things I really love is the compare mode where if I have 10 frames of a similar image, I can actually look at each of them side by side and then select down to the last one, right? Mm -hmm. Where I'm really looking hard. Um, I think another way to do that is to know your camera really well the way that the switch to manual guys teach so that when you're out in the field photographing, you're not even thinking about the settings. You're not thinking about the camera. What you're thinking about is whether what you're making is a real picture. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, when I'm out photographing landscapes, um, I'm listening really quietly, even just to decide whether I'm going to take a left or a right turn in the car, you know, on some road that I don't know in order to maybe find something that could be really special. Uh, I think it's just, um, there's a certain amount of, of preparing really well and then letting go. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain amount of, of um, really focusing, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, I mean, I think it's a lot of little stuff that sometimes people dismiss as technique, like in Photoshop, zooming in to 100% to check your pictures, uh, or after you've photographed with a digital camera, you know, using that little plus button to zoom all the way in to make sure you nailed the focus or that the depth of field is what you want or that the expression on the person's face isn't just meh. Um, and I think it's, it's that, um, that kind of respect for your own pictures that allows us to listen to them better. And, and tying this all together, sort of yeah. an end thing, you know, we started about talking about how the, the uh, sort of the instruments and processes are uh, sort of falling away a little bit and more of the intuition and, and joining and sharing is taking over. Um, so, you know, Photoshop and Lightroom may be less and less concerned about more the experience, more the uh, surprise of photography. But um, I think it's always been that way. I mean, it's like, it's like um, you know, whether I'm doing woodworking or making photographs, like the tools are great and I like having really good tools yeah, we love and knowing tools. how to use those tools. Yeah. But it's like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to say? Mm-hmm. Getting in touch with that, mm-hmm. right? Getting in touch with what's inside us. I think that's the critical thing. And it's not that Photoshop falls away. Right. Although every process eventually has its own life span. But I think, I think, you know, there's, um, 
there's a great quote from some Eastern European director whose movies I've never seen. And he said, the, the camera is always pointed squarely at the desperate artist behind the lens. And I think that's a good thing. It's like, you know, I think, I think my parting advice is make sure that you have the camera pointed inside at the same time that it's pointed outside. Um, Hmm. And that the tools are just tools and I'm happy to help people learn the tools. But, um, I think more what I do is I hold people's feet to the fire about whether the pictures they're making, um, have any meaning to them. Wow. Wow. I couldn't have summed it up better. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) This, this went really well. This is fun. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and I don't know why we don't do it more often, but here you are. And this was, uh, this was a great conversation. I think we, we, I think there's a good, good place to end. So this is a great place to land. I just want to put in a shameless plug for Please. myself. Yeah. For wait, you've got manual. two, you've got two. Well, no, put, put your own shot. Plug So we've got the two workshops coming up, right? Name them but, again. Let's tell them again. So, uh, one is in Anderson ranch in Colorado, up in the Rockies in the middle of summer. Uh, we're going to head up to the continental divide and photograph. We're going to work in the lab. We're going to have some fun and make some new friends, but that's August 21st to 25th at Anderson ranch in Snowmass, Colorado. And then midwinter, January 23rd to 28th in Bennington, Vermont, there's the North country studio workshops where I'll be doing a very similar workshop, but we'll be surrounded by other workshops where they'll be doing pottery and woodworking and painting and all kinds of other stuff. It's all the workshops happen at once in this one week and it's going to be a really cool experience. That's, that sounds great. Especially in the middle of winter when we all get sort of, uh, in hibernation mode, uh, yep. the best to get out to, that's probably a great time to take workshops. So, but the other thing I want to tell people is that, um, you and I are always available for private consultation, for portfolio reviews, for private lessons in Photoshop, Lightroom, Snapseed, camera handling. And more and more in recent years, people come to me not just for a few hours of lessons, but for long-term mentorships where we mm-hmm. might work together for a year or two you know, with assignments once a month or Skype sessions um, where we review work do the digital darkroom work together, work on technique, work on vision, and, you know, put together websites or books or uh, make projects happen. And all that stuff is really fun, you know, helping people find their voice, helping people listen to their own pictures, helping people see better, helping people be creative and fulfilled. It's awesome. And I would, you know, as the shameless plug part of it, it's something I would highly encourage, especially people wanting to come to your workshops or people wanting to learn from, you know, the STM guys that, uh, you know, it's one thing that you can do and you can Google and get uh, information on, on YouTube, but it's another thing to have an interaction with other people, uh, that I, that I feel, and I'm sure you feel the same way is, I want to say more important, but adds a dimension that, uh, you can't get by just, you know, you know, even just reading a book uh, is yeah. is not enough. You do need that back and forth interaction. You know, it's it's like what we're doing right here. I mean, I could certainly do the podcast by myself, but talking to myself is not as as well. Photographers are sort of famously lone wolves, and what happens when you get a bunch of photographers together is they have a really good time. Yeah, that's like a true. Photo walk yep. out yep. to Coney yep. Island or Absolutely. over the bridges. Or, you know, going out in a couple of carloads of people into the desert or the mountains to go shoot is just tremendous fun. Yeah. 
and I'm looking forward to doing that. Yeah, soon. So, so uh, I'm going to tell every we'll put the we'll put the links in our show notes so that uh, people can go and click on them right away. Um, but yeah, I would encourage uh, doing that as much as possible uh, and seeking uh, seeking out uh, other photographers for the company and the. Uh, and the sharing, and you know, and the not, fun, and the fun, and not so not obsessing so much with the gear and the software so much, but uh, it's good to learn it, but don't obsess about it. So, um, thanks for having me on the show, Antonio. Yeah. So while you're here, where can uh, where's the best place for people to find you? It's on my website, uh, www.genemealy.com. J E A N M I E L E, and that'll be in the program notes. Also, I'm really really open to people reaching out and uh, talking to me. So. If you email me, I may respond in days. If you text or call me and my number's on the website, I'll respond immediately. Are you a Twitter uh, guy as much? Honestly, not so much. Mostly okay. Twitter is a broadcast medium for me, not a receiving okay. medium. All right. So we'll look for you on your website. So that's Please. great. Thanks for, thanks for coming in. And uh, hopefully next time we'll get Tom, uh, the three of us together, and we'll do another do another three-way talk because those were always fun. So I look forward to that. All right. So... That is the wow, fifty-seven episodes. We're 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 good that way. Um, where can you find us? Well, we can be found at our website, switchtomanual.com. So you can check us out there. We've got a lot of links to things. Um, you can find us on Twitter at uh, switch the number two manual. So switch to manual. And as long as you're on Twitter, you can follow me uh, at am rosario. And uh, if you want to follow Tom, he's at at witness photog. P h o t o g. We love uh, Facebook. We're on there a lot. Um, please. Oh, I'm on Facebook too. You're yeah. on Facebook too. Okay, so Gene Mealy photographer. Gene Mealy photographer on Facebook. Check him out there. Um, thanks. Uh, if you guys listen to us on iTunes, please give us reviews and ratings. That will help us get more noticed, and we could uh, use the notifications. Um, the other thing is that uh, we do uh, have a little tip cup on our website. If you'd like to help us out with some. Uh, chump change and uh, help support the podcast we would appreciate that so you can find uh, you can find a little paypal button on our website and on our podbean page uh, also if you'd like to support the site we do as gene mentioned before we do offer portfolio reviews on our site so you can go check them out uh, you send us your pictures and uh, you get back some uh, pretty professional feedback i like to think so go check those out and what else uh, oh again <laughs> I'll get to this at some point, but uh, Tom and I will be selling our prints on our website soon. I have to really redo the website. I know I've been saying this at the end of probably the past five episodes. So uh, this is the sixth one. I'll, if I keep saying it, it will get done uh, at some point, but that will be eventually a great way to support the Switch to Manual guys by buying our prints. So uh, thanks to Gene. Thank you again. Thank you, Antonio. And to everybody else, I will uh, see you later and adios. <laughs>